0: Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday is a weekly show where each and every single Friday we focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Of course, Felony Friday is only one of the shows we have here. We have three shows. Lions of Liberty is a bit of a variety show. Every Monday, we kick things off with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest running program, our flagship program. Mark interviews leaders in the uh, liberty movement and hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams, which is your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And let me tell you, Brian is crushing it right now. This past week was probably my favorite episode that he's ever done. I should say my favorite solo show that he's done. My favorite show of all time that Brian has done with Electric Liberty Land is his show with Owen Benjamin, which was awesome. Go back and check that out. You can find it just by going to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you get your uh, podcasts and searching for Owen Benjamin on Lines of Liberty. It'll come right up. But this last week's show, Wednesday's show, where Brian took on uh, the progressives and the progressives really influence um, cause of the gun violence we have in this country. Brian was spitting fire. And if you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. Of course, if you subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, you can get all three of these shows delivered right to your phone, right to your podcast feed. So make sure to do that and never miss an episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast. This episode of Felony Friday is episode 112. So that means you'll be able to find the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF112. I just want to take a quick minute before we get to today's interview to tell you about the sponsor for today's show. Today's show is brought to you by RDAP Dan. Are you or someone you know facing the prospect of going to prison? Facing a federal case is an extremely stressful thing. You'll be faced with confronting a situation that is unfamiliar and confusing. So what you need to do if you are facing this or someone you know, someone you care about is facing this situation, please give Dan Wise a call, also known as RDAP Dan. That is his YouTube name. Dan has a great YouTube channel where he talks about the prison system, talks about all these programs that can reduce your sentences. Dan and his team of specialists will help you fight for your freedom. You know, your attorney handles the legal aspects of your case while you're in prison. The prison consultant helps you with qualifying for sentence reduction programs, avoiding common mistakes that zap your chances of early release, and keeping a handle on anxiety and stress during the process. You can find out more about this and schedule your free consultation with Dan by going to lionsofliberty.com RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com R-D-A-P. My guest today on Felony Friday is Brian Sadie. Brian is a politically independent author who writes crony capitalism, human rights, and civil liberties. The pages of his books are filled with eye-opening revelations that are backed up with extensive documentation. Now, Brian has published a three-book series. It's called Rackets, and it talks about the legalization of drugs, gambling, and The Decriminalization of Prostitution. Now, he's also written other books, and he's read many articles that have been published um, all across the interwebs. But today, for the purposes of today's show, we're going to focus on talking about his book Rackets, The Drug War, A Trillion Dollar Con Game. Brian, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, really do appreciate it. And read through your book, the the drug war trillion trillion dollar con game. And you know, I said in the intro that it's you know backed up with extensive documentation. That's probably an understatement. I mean, the amount of citations <laughs> and uh, references you had in there. Um, I don't know how long it took you to write this book, but it was it was impressive. Let me tell you, it was damn impressive. So, uh, well, I guess that's, that's a good question. So how long did it take you to write a book like this?
1: Um, well, originally it was going to be one book. It was those three books were, were going to be one. But, you know, it it, well, it was a seven-year project um, for the three books. Um, but, yeah, it just got to be to where this would have been. I mean, it would have been so long as one book. Um, and that way I could actually do And I was trying to be too concise with it. Um, so that way I got to really do it to do each issue justice in my opinion. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, um, that's, that's really my style is, is a document, everything you can disagree with what I have to say, but it, it is well, you know, or I guess my interpretation of the facts you can disagree with. Um, but yes, uh, what, what I present, I think is very well documented. My point of view.
0: Right. And I would agree, um, that you do come across as being politically independent. Um, you know, as a, as a libertarian and as most people listening to this show are at least libertarian leaning, um, I think they would you know, identify with almost everything that you're saying, that you're uh, the conclusions that you're coming to in this book, yeah, your your opinions that come through. So I'm kind of wondering, not that I want to pigeonhole you because I'm not looking to do that, but I'm curious as to what your influences were um, growing up and when you were. You know coming into your own and deciding to to write a book like this. So did did you grow up as on one you know as either a conservative or a liberal or how did you um you know how did you come into these ideas?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I definitely grew up um, in a very democratic household. Uh, my parents they have a they have a picture. Of, where they were at the, the Democratic convention next to, Jimmy Car- or next to Jimmy Carter. So I grew up in a very liberal uh, household. And I would say probably my, my early leanings were probably more more mainline Democrat. Um, and I'd say, you know, the older I got, I definitely um, became more of a, I'm definitely a, a pretty libertarian-leaning guy. I mean, that, that comes across when you're, you're talking about legalizing drugs and gambling, and decriminalizing prostitution. Um, I, I voted libertarian in general, um, but I would say again I, I try to look at every uh, every I- issue independently um, because I don't agree with the libertarian platform on every issue, um, and I think pretty much every party tends to get you know kind of caught in their own dogma. This, you know, this is our philosophy, and we we just we cannot look outside the box, uh, I, and I think that's you know I, I think that's a problem with every party. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you could definitely say that my ideals are, definitely have a strong libertarian lean, for sure. Um, particularly, I'm not even a lean, it comes to civil liberties issues, um, personal freedom. I'm hardcore libertarian. Now, some people would also call that a hardcore progressive, but then we start getting into the definitions and and, and, and how we categorize all these things. Um, but, but yes, yeah, I am. I am a strong advocate for personal freedom. Um, so yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, I, I guess growing up as a liberal um, was was that something that was instilled as you early? You know, you you saw that you, you know your parents respected civil liberties.
1: Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Not not as far as not quite as far as my own personal opinions. But yeah, having a a, a general liberal ideology towards, I guess, towards crime. And, you know, I guess, I guess a more forgiving view, you know, for, you it's the typical, at least the rhetoric from the Democrat party is to try to look out for the little guy. Um, even though I, I don't agree, (laughs) I don't think that the the actions of the party uh, matches that in many ways, but, um, but yeah, I guess I would, uh, I would say that's the case.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's really you know a, a theme throughout your book um, when you're talking about the the role that the role that politicians play, or the role that corporations play, or, or the role that big big banks play in in the war on drugs. And um, I mean, you go into extensive details down down each of these paths. Um, so, you know, I I, th- I think it's it's important to. Uh, To point out that you know there's not one—I mean, I don't think there's one party that's responsible for the disaster that is uh, the war on drugs, but they sort of all 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 play a different role. I'm sure a lot of them, in their own self-interest, of course, um, they're they're helping themselves. But I did want to ask you to start off about the prison industrial Mm -hmm. complex, and it's it's one of the first chapters in the book, and. Mm You know, I'm reading this and, and thinking in my mind, comparing it to the military-industrial complex. In the military-industrial complex, um, you have, you know, I think I think anyone who's going to look at the military-industrial complex honestly is going to understand it's it's really pretty simple. You have uh, politicians who bang the war drums; they receive kickbacks for banging the war drums, and that you know the, they vote to uh, shift money, shift taxpayer money into the coffers of these corporations who get government contracts and then they drop bombs and then the cycle continues. And, uh, and that's how the military industrial complex grows and continues to, uh, suck up taxpayer dollars and cause destruction across the, uh, across the world. Really. When you talk about the prison industrial right. complex though, I don't know if it's that, uh, you know, if it's that easy or, or that simple right. to explain. So, 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 Looking at those two things, what kind of differences do you see, and you know what kind of uh, what kind of things are unique to the prison industrial complex?
1: Yeah, because it's really more um, it's really more of a government bureaucracy that that, that keeps that going. Um, and uh, I guess to start off the book, I like to give the example we've all probably, well, I maybe mean, not all of us, but many of us have seen those commercials um, on TV where they say if you get a DUI, it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars. Now it's not a, a flat ten thousand dollar fine. It's from all of these different steps um, in the criminal justice process. Uh, you're gonna yeah, you're gonna get a fine. You're gonna get court fees. You're gonna get probation fees, uh, lawyer fees, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all of these different layers to the criminal justice system. And and yes, it's basically a large bureaucracy that's built up. Um, and, and in many ways, the, the drug war is funding it. It, it. Drug charges, it's the most common criminal offense. Um, so there's all these different entities that have a conflict of interest. If we were to end the drug war tomorrow, now that would be an overall positive thing for the vast majority of society. But there's this relatively, uh, relatively, well, I would say, in comparison to all of society, there's this relatively small group that desperately doesn't want to see it go. Um, that, that's obviously uh, the prison industry, like say legal uh, legal industry, uh, one of the things that go into even defense contractors who who go into these other countries and enforce these different um, drug war programs. Um, but yeah, to, to basically uh, try to simplify it is that there's just a lot of conflicts of interest. Um, I know it's something you definitely touch upon. Quite a bit in your program of how it, it's a system that, in many ways, is designed to put people in prison. It's not really. We use the term criminal justice system, but it's not really a system um, that's intent. It's truly intent upon justice. It's it definitely leans in favor of the prosecution and putting people in prison. Um, you know, you never really run across a, you know a, a conspiracy where the police conspired to keep somebody out of jail. But we do come across all kinds of criminal conspiracies where, where we, where we unjustly put people in prison. Um, and again, it really goes back to that basic conflict of interest.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really good point. It's worth repeating is we don't have a criminal justice system when it, at least when it's when we talk about the war on drugs. You know, I don't think I don't think anyone can honestly look at it that way. I don't think Jeff Sessions can look at it that way and say by by enforcing these drug laws that he is del- delivering justice. Because who would he be be delivering justice to? Um, certainly not to um, the people that he's that he's locking up. They haven't you violated anyone else's individual rights. They haven't harmed another right, individual. The user, the
1: user, right. The use, right. The, the individual user, you're definitely not helping the individual user. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, the argument being that, well, we're locking up the, the violent criminals who sell this stuff. But again, if this stuff were not illegal, none of, none of that would happen. You know, Budweiser and Coors aren't shooting each other out. <laughs> um, To go distribute their product, it's a legal product. Um, And just like I said, when the prohibition of alcohol ended, the the crime rate dropped dramatically, Um, and it it was that way for decades until the '70s when we sort of reamped or essentially launched the the war on drugs. Even though these things, uh, these substances, have been criminalized for decades beforehand, but once once Nixon really made that commitment, guess what? The crime rate. Uh, increased dramatically, and it's been that way really ever since. And, 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 I, and my point being that the main culprit in that is the black market, vi- the black market violence for controlling the distribution of, of these illegal products. It's not. I mean, and there's also is some of it from the the drug users who can't afford the habits, so they have to resort to a life of crime. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's really just it's control of the black market
0: yeah there's there's one statistic um you talked about and we were talking about drug users and that feeding into an element of crime that's that's certainly an aspect of it and even if we legalize you're still going to have addicts who are you know strung out and and might be committing crimes but um you were you compared i I forget you can probably correct me on what the stat is but compared to the the pre-drug war percentage of the population who were addicts Compared to current day, I think it was like 2010, the percentage of the population who are addicts, and it's actually like 2% higher now. Is that right?
1: Right. And now that's two, that's 2010. It's gone up even since then. Yeah. What, what a lot of people don't realize is that for the majority of our, our history, I'm saying our, I mean, in the United States, drugs were legal. They were completely unregulated. Um, and it, it was... You can see these old um, advertisements, you know, for you know, grandpa's cough medicine. A lot of times it was loaded with morphine or, or all these different, um, what they called patent medicines, which there was no patent to them. It was just sort of a, a clever way of selling drugs. Um, and when you look at the rates, now off the top of my head, I remember it was a rate of about five for every thousand person um, was addicted to drugs. Uh, that was again. That was at the turn of the century, right around 1906, before we started to regulate these products. And for you know, for most of that time, even though we criminalized this activity, really had no dent in the actual demand, and it actually slightly increased. Um, and when I I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, I only gave it a 2010 number. It's a little higher, and it's gone up since then. So. The point being that this has been actually slightly counterproductive, just as far as the um, reducing demand. Um, and 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 I'm putting aside obviously all of the, the damage from from the from criminalizing this content.
0: Yeah. So there's really no aspect of the war on drugs that you know people proponents of the war on drugs can point to and say, "Well, look at this here. This is one thing where we've made progress." There's nothing. I mean, right. horrible violence. Right. Um, you have probably harder, worse drugs um, that are more widely used because, I mean, there's there's definitely mm-hmm. an argument to be made. If drugs were illegal, um, you wouldn't have uh, a lot of these other hard drugs or people seeking these other uh, hard drugs on the market because they would have easy access to a drug such as, uh, you know, cannabis or, uh, or, or something like that.
1: Right. I, I firmly believe that demand would stay, you know, would stay right around the same. Um, probably fluctuate a little in the beginning. i say we. Uh, my preferred path would be decriminalize first, and then eventually move towards decriminalization. I mean, um, legalization. I mean, I'm talking for the harder drugs: cocaine, meth, all of that. What
0: would, what would um, be your your reasoning for that?
1: Um, I I think that oh, you're saying as far as yeah, the, the, just for first, the reason
0: for fa- phasing it that way with decriminalization first, and then. I personally believe because we've
1: seen, um, like with OxyContin and Adderall, where we've had this—it's these, these products are legalized, but it's really in the shadiest of ways. They're advertised deceptively. We can go into all that kind of stuff, um, where it's—it's it's really sort of a sham model of what legalization should be, um, to where you know that there isn't this huge profit incentive, um, and I think if you sort of flip the market immediately. There, there is a certain percentage of the population, I do believe, would just go, oh, well, I guess it's, I guess it's okay and it's legal. And, and again, I think that's a small percentage. Uh, but I think that what really we need to do is look at the experiments in other countries, uh, particularly Portugal, where it was decriminalized. You get rid of the stigma. Um, you start to educate people a little better. Put those, put those resources from fighting the drug war into helping people uh, battle drug addiction. And just point out that this is just this is just a stupid awful habit, and then I think that we can start to really then move towards um, a legalized market to where um, uh, because that's really the end road. Because when when you decriminalize it, you still have you still have um, you know criminal groups that are that are selling this and are profiting from it. Um, decriminalization usually means more for the um, for the user, not for the actual for the sellers. And so that the, the the biggest problem with the drug war is really that black market crime and, and all that goes along with that. So it, the, the only way to truly eliminate that is through legalization. But obviously, I do think that needs to be done in very careful steps. It does need to be monitored well and regulated properly.
0: So what types of regulations do you think do you think there need to be around? I mean, well, for for example, let's start with, with, uh, with marijuana. I mean, we've obviously seen today some States have already legalized it recreationally. Most have legalized it, uh, medically. Um, do, do you think marijuana can get to the point where it's as, as legal as, um, you know, going to the liquor store?
1: I think so. Absolutely. It's a safer, it's a safer drug. Um, than alcohol. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's the other drugs where I think we really have to be much more forceful as far as the regulations, the, the drugs that actually kill people now. And again, I'm not one of these people, um, somebody could misinterpret my work and the person who's saying, you know, legalize drugs, gambling, all this stuff that I'm sort of trying to promote these things. Cause I'm not doing that in any way. Um, I do think we need to have an honest conversation about marijuana. There are some negative health effects, but you, you're, you're not going to die from a drug overdose from it. But, you know, there are, there are some negative aspects of using marijuana. Um, and, and some folks, you know, who, who do advocate for it, I feel like they, they just want to completely, you know, whitewash those factors. But that in no way justifies keeping that product illegal,
0: I mean, not there's, a, there's negative way, aspects my, to eating too much bread. You know, I, don't think we need yeah. a, I don't think we need to regulate the bread market. Right, but. right.
1: But I do think when you talk about stuff like cocaine, heroin, these are very dangerous products. I'm pretty sure you know somebody who's ruined their life with this stuff. I know I, have, I do. Um, pretty much everybody does. So, I mean, these are very dangerous products, and I do think it needs to be handled accordingly. Um, but as, as we've really established, criminalizing this stuff is just far worse. Um, and when you really look at the experiments with you know, other countries that have decriminalized, it, it, is a, it has a positive effect on demand. Um, I'll give you one that, that really, I think, blows a lot of people's minds. Let's, let's compare Iran, for example. Now, they have the death penalty for drug traffickers. They're hanged in public. But actually, recently, what they're doing, they're actually liberalizing their drug laws. And again, this is Iran. That's about as conservative as you can get. And uh, in some instances, they're, they're basically trying to decriminalize um, drug use for the user. Not, again, not for the seller, but basically a sympathetic view for, for the user. And again, this is, a, this is Iran that we can take a, <laughs> that we can take an example from.
0: Know, yeah, we're mo- modern a- day a- Iran. I mean, if you go back to the right. you know, 60s and 70s, maybe it'd be more believable. But uh, yeah, but uh, right. modern day, Iran it's that's that's crazy.
1: Right. Well, they're they're more liberal on on that particular issue than far more liberal than the United States.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And just to go back to to talking about you know, I think it's funny that you bring up um, you know you're writing these books about about legalizing drugs and. Uh, gambling and prostitution. And that's not to say that everyone should be doing it. I, I get the, I mean, I get the exact right. same thing from people who, <laughs> whatever. and, and I, I guess I take a little bit farther than you, but maybe not. I think we're pretty much on the same page, but, you know, I, I would also say that the legal drugs or that harder drugs like cocaine and heroin and meth should, should all be as, as legal as tomatoes. And when I say that, I don't mean that, you know, People should be selling them out of 7-Eleven because I don't think people would sell them out of 7-Eleven just because um, the market reaction to a guy selling meth out of a 7-Eleven and having you know, a bunch of 16-year-old kids high on meth leaving his store, it's, it's, it's just not a good reaction to have. So I think the market, if we allowed this stuff out of the shadows into society to allow it to be organized um, by the marketplace mm-hmm. – I I think it would right. uh be organized in a much safer way in a in a way where people would be you know less likely or it maybe even be impossible for uh, you know a, a dose of heroin or or cocaine or something like that to to cause an OD. So I, I I think uh I don't know if necessarily we need regulations in place um from the top down, I think the the regulations would sort of form on their own. Um,
1: Uh, Right. And I, and I don't think anybody really has the proper master plan as to how to, how to effectively regulate that market. Again, it's all hypothetical at this point. And, you know, we, we, like I said, with decriminalization, there's no cookie cutter example countries. There's a lot of trial by error. You know, we just kind of have to, you just kind of have to move forward with it. Um, and, 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 and just learn from and learn from those examples. Um, it, it, w- it will not be, I don't think it will be a 100% smooth process. Again, that's if it, if we could ever have this happen. I don't really foresee it happen. But in my ideal world, um, it would happen. But yes, it, exactly. There, how to regulate it? I guess I just said it, it, it would just have to be a trial by error process.
0: Yeah, I mean uh, the the, the first the first step um, to getting to get into going down that road is you know get, getting getting cannabis legalized and you know if we if we, if we can get that far then next, next ten Holy. years um, that, right. that'll be that'll be pretty that'll be good for good for everyone involved. Hey guys, let's take a quick moment to hear from our sponsor for today's show. Of course, today's show is sponsored by RDAP Dan Prison Consultants. And as I've documented many times on this show, sometimes, in fact, often, most of the time, even good people go to prison. And facing a federal case is an extremely stressful time. If you're facing this reality, then you need to contact Dan Wise, also known as RDAP Dan. RDAP Dan on YouTube. He has a great YouTube channel. Check that out. Dan and his team of prison consultants, I promise you, they will reduce your stress levels immediately upon speaking with them. You can call Dan and his team at any time. He will give you and your loved ones open access to support and answers. Now, Dan and his team will assist you with the following aspects of the process. Narrative letters to the judge, character reference letters, RDAP qualifications, prison designation, online reputation management, mindset coaching, and additional halfway house time. Don't sleep on this one, guys. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting linesoflibertycom slash RDAP. That's linesoflibertycom R-D-A-P. And also on that page, I will have links and one of Dan's YouTube videos on that page. You can check it out. Dan has an outstanding YouTube channel with tons of information on the prison system. So I really encourage you to check that out. I want to move on and ask you about another section of your book where you talk about uh, money laundering, really the involvement of big banks, and especially how, and I think it's important to point this out, how when big banks get involved and get caught laundering money through cartels or big-time drug dealers, oftentimes there's almost no penalty um, or just a little slap on the wrist, a fine maybe. People rarely spend time in prison. Um, why, why do you think that is? Do you, do you think that there is you know, some nefarious things going on behind the scenes or is this just a case of uh, just uh, really not having equality under the law where the bankers get off and then uh, you know, a street seller sells a bag of coke and spends a decade in prison?
1: I point to, and it's um, it's definitely a theme, um, I point to a lot of different corporate crime in the book. Um, and I basically point to a system of soft corruption, uh, maybe not necessarily direct bribes, but like I said, a system of soft corruption. Um, the last big company um, to get busted uh, for money laundering it was HSBC, and they weren't just um, laundering for the Sinaloa cartel. Now they were, again, they were the favored cartel. Um, I mean, they were the favored bank for the cartel. Um, it was to the point to where the cartel literally knew the exact dimensions of the teller windows <laughs> for how much money they could stuff through there in one day. Wow. Um, the bank was. I mean, the bank was also laundering for for terrorist organizations. Um, at the end of the day, not a single person went to prison. Um, and really what I point to, um, now that was a justice department led by Eric Holder. Um, now he's, he's a, re- you familiar with the term revolving door. Um, it's just that it's just kind of the same concept with, uh, you know, with the prison uh, or with the military industrial mm-hmm. complex, but the same, the people who come from that justice system and they end up going and working for the, the white collar defense firms that protect the same, those same companies. Um, and it's just really this cycle. It, You know, it's really a culture. Um, I remember I talked with this one—I won't won't give his name—but this one attorney. um, You know, he's on the other side. He protects whistleblowers, but and he's telling me that he's had that exact same temptation. You know, he knows what it's like to work on that government salary. You're trying to do the good thing, trying to put the bad people away. You're making—you went to this particular lawyer. You know, he went to law school. You know, left law school with say about a half a million dollars in debt. He's making you know a good salary. You know. But to chip away at that debt, it's going to take quite a long time. And just that temptation that you can then go and work for one of these one of these private practices that defend um, the crooked companies, and you can make you can make ten, fifteen times that amount. Um, and but the thing is, you got to play ball while you're while you're in office there. Um, I, I mean, I can. Um, I mean, it's not on the subject of money laundering, but it's kind of really at the uh, Right on the front of my mind right now, um, there was a there was a case in Miami where um, Chiquita Banana was sued by um, some some family members, um, the family members of, of people who have, who were working in Colombia, who were murdered by the FARC. Um, I'm, you, you're, I know you're familiar with that name from reading my book. Mm-hmm. But for listeners, um, it's they are basically a communist rebel group in Colombia. They've been at war with the government for over fifty years, and uh, one drug trafficking is drug trafficking is one of the main sources of income, but also extortion. And who they extort? Again, they're a communist um, uh, ideology, so they they go after these big multinational corporations. They'll blow up oil pipelines. They'll kidnap. You know high level corporate executives. Um, so that's how they, they get their money and they, and if you don't pay their extortion money, they'll go kill your workers. So to get back to that. So there was this case, um, against Chiquita banana where they, they settled the case because they did make payments to the FARC. They were, they were paying extortion money. Um, now I think most people would view them in that particular instance as the victim. That's how I view them. Um, I, I don't really view that as aiding and abetting terrorism because, again, it's extortion. Now, my heart goes out to the people who were killed by, by the FARC, but there's the flip side. Um, now, there's these paramilitary groups in Colombia. Um, the main one was called the AUC, and this was, again, this is a designated terrorist group, according to the U.S. government. Chiquita was paying them even more money, and they weren't just paying them money they were giving them weapons, ammunition and they were essentially not only working as security for their company, they literally killed different union uh union organizers. They're basically mercenaries for hire. Um so to to try to wrap this up, the point of what I'm trying to make is they also had to face charges for that. Mhm. You want to know who who defended them in that case?
0: Who
1: Eric Holder, when he was <laughs> representing Covington and Burling, um, it's it's the same law firm that's, that's rep- represented all kinds of corporate criminals. And th- here's a little more background on that particular case. So the representatives for Chiquita they went for they went they had a private meeting with um, with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and in particular, it was Michael Chertoff, who again later became the head of Homeland Security. But they they, and they told him, the hey, you know, who... we've.
0: Been, he bought the company or owned the company who had those first scanners, the the, uh, scanners. the, the rapid scan <laughs> that they put in the airports when the TSA first started that took nude images, essentially, of people?
1: Yep. Same person. So they had this closed-door meeting with Chertoff and some of the other U.S. attorneys. He was assistant U.S. attorney on the case. Um, and they and they volunteered that information that hey you know we've been making these payments and they're providing protection for us but we are we are aiding and abetting you know a terrorist organization, um, but to try and uh, try and sum it up quickly is he he basically didn't give them a clear guidance on do you stop making the payments it was just sort of very wishy washy and in the end that was actually used as part of their defense. So nobody actually went to prison. Um, and again, the Colombian government, they wanted to extradite, they wanted to extradite, you know, some of, the, some of the executives. I mean, there's documentation that shows that they were very complicit. They knew exactly what they were doing. And the Colombian government wanted to extradite them to Colombia. And obviously that didn't happen. We didn't even, you know, our own government didn't criminalize and it didn't put any of the individuals in prison. They just had to, you know, had to pay a fine um, at the end of the day. And just to get back to that same point of the revolving door, after uh, Chertoff left the U.S. Attorney's Office, he goes to Covington and Burling, a company that's representing Chiquita Banana. And it, it, there's just so many of these types of examples. And it, it's just, like I say, it's just really heartbreaking. And I know that it's something, it's a topic or a theme that I know with your show, you, you cover. It's sort of this, how, the way that the federal government can just slap down and just just beat down the people who really can't defend themselves. But then when it's the really horrible transgressors, but the people who actually have, or I shouldn't say people with the corporations that have the means to defend themselves, the government just bends over backwards for them. Um, you know, again, let's, let's kind of put this in perspective. Um, again, not everybody really knows much about the AUC, that, that paramilitary group, but there was a, there was a civil war in, in Colombia, roughly, oh, Around 200,000 people were killed, um, the vast majority of them were civilians, and the vast majority of those deaths were at the hand of the Colombian government and the paramilitaries. And it's a government that our tax dollars, have we've paid billions of dollars to them over the last 20 years. Um, another thing I'd like to point out is the U.S. government didn't designate that that same specific paramilitary organization as a terrorist organization until after we started uh, what's known as Plan Colombia. That's where we provide, um, it's essentially like a, like a handoff to the, uh, to the military industrial complex, but we do it in the form of what we call counter-narcotics. Uh, but to be really, it, it's a theme that I touched upon quite a bit um, in the book and some of my subsequent work is that basically the drug war in many ways, it's, it's a pretense for a neo-cold war. Um, so to go back to that point of what I was talking about earlier, the FARC, the Communists they they are definitely major drug traffickers but so are the paramilitaries and as far but as far as the actual enforcement of those drug laws, all of those resources have been focused on the FARC and the Communists while our government looked the other way at what was happening, more For all intents and purposes, look the other way, what was happening with the Colombian military and the paramilitaries, the drug trafficking. That's what I mean as far as the drug trafficking on their part. Uh, it's, uh, and you can look at this. It, it's a theme all throughout Latin America, very many, very many other cu- countries um, to where our geopolitical goals overrule the drug war. Um, and it's, again, it gets that sort of part of why I use that title of it's a trillion-dollar con game. Um, in other words, we've spent a trillion dollars, or tax dollars have spent a trillion dollars um, for this drug war. But at the end of the day, it's really a lie. Some of the biggest drug traffickers in the world have been allies of the U.S. government. Um, I mean, I can go on.
0: What I can you bore about you all with, I mean, Why are we in Afghanistan still? <laughs> right. Is there any I mean, other reason to be in you, Afghanistan you can, other than the, I don't I I personally don't,
1: I don't think that's where the term uh, you know the the dog or the tail wagging the dog or whatever that expression is <laughs> but you can look right down the line um, if they're Taliban drug traffickers we literally have them on a kill list that that you know that was part of a WikiLeaks um, dump right there mm-hmm. but now if they're say our allies there's a very high likelihood. That that person will be not only uh, not only a U.S. ally, uh, but they're on the CIA's pay uh, payroll. So it's you can pretty much go right down the line there. Um, it's in there's just so many of these examples where, um, like I say, it's just uh, you can look at Honduras right now. Um, you, uh, you may have seen some of the news about there's this election controversy, um, but. To be real succinct, um, it looks like absolutely there was an election fraud in Honduras. Um, but the guy, the incumbent, is very much a U.S. military and economic ally, and even though they committed fraud, the U.S. government absolutely they come out and they've uh, they, they've recognized the election and, and congratulated him on winning. While meanwhile, pretty much all of the international community is called this. You know, call it an election fraud, and they want to re—they want a revote.
0: Uh, are are you suggesting the U.S. government would meddle in another country's election? That's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> well, I'm actually not saying that they're meddling. I'd
1: say that they're—they're they're no, they, they probably probably looking the other way. You think so? kind possible? I, I haven't come <laughs> across any evidence of that. Yeah. Um, but the point being that that regime—and again, it's a follow-up from a 2009 coup, which we absolutely. Uh, at a minimum um, supported um, but it 's been a regime that is just deeply deeply corrupt with all kinds of links to drug trafficking um, but and, and again, you know you, you just we there 's this double standard of how the drug war is enforced um, and I, like one of the ones I like to point to would be Venezuela, for example, guess what? That government is deeply corrupt and deeply tied to drug trafficking, but you know that's the one of the few governments that that our politicians point to. We, I mean, if you look at the list of sanctions connected with the Venezuelan government, I mean your head will spin. But I, in my opinion, the, the Honduran government is just as corrupt, if not more. I, as far as I know, there's not a single there's not a single official on that sanction list there.
0: Well, the the crazy right. thing with uh, with the sanctions, we see all, all these sanctions on Venezuela, all, all these sanctions placed on North Korea, um, sanctions placed on Iran, sanctions placed on Russia. Uh, all it does is provide fuel for those, you know authoritarian dictator type rulers to blame any struggle that the people are going through on the United States and on the sanctions. So it sort of just right. just continues to to feed the problem unfortunately. I wanted to ask you. I mean, we're we're talking about. So, I, th- I think earlier um, at, the begin- at the beginning of this episode, we talked about really the prison industrial complex and ending the drug war tomorrow. If we were able to do that, or ending it, you know, over the next couple of years, um, there would be a small group of people impacted. You know, you know cops, uh, prison guards, lawyers, people. Other people exactly. in law enforcement, stuff like that, who might lose their jobs, might be redirected into you know different types of work, different fields. But when you take a step back, though, it's really much larger than that because everything we've been talking about for the past you know twenty minutes or so here of the global implications, uh, just the huge financial web we have here that really is entangled in the war on drugs, and there's so many people who are making massive sums of money off of it, governments, banks. Do you think it's really possible to overcome all this and really legalize drugs and, and, and sort of break this down?
1: I am highly cynical when it comes to that stuff. Uh, now, I hear all this t- really, really positive talk, and I, I personally, I just don't see it. I, I, I p- Potentially marijuana legalization Um it's, I think that it probably is a matter of time, but I just don't. I don't see the harder drugs, and furthermore, there's just a lot more profit in those harder drugs. So it, it I, I, I'm, I'm very cynical when it comes to that. I, I just don't see that. I don't see that happening really anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and, it's amazing and it we is, even got alcohol back. When you start to think about, well, <laughs> I can't believe they gave that back to us. Wow, they, I mean, they were probably making a crap ton of money off that. My
1: personal opinion um, on that one is that that came down to basic um, basic self interest on the part of the population. Alcohol was much more commonly used, um, but you know marijuana's definitely pretty common, but not as common as alcohol and even if you combine cocaine, you know heroin, all of these things it's still it's still the mi- minority of Americans. Um, Versus alcohol, I don't know the exact numbers, but it, it was a high percent, just as it is today. We use alcohol, and I think that really just came down to basic self-interest, and that's part. That's another. Re- that's one of many reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm just really skeptical that the, that the end of the drug wars will come anytime soon. Well,
0: let me ask you this question because you've written a book on the drug war, obviously on uh, gambling and on prostitution. So which Mm -hmm. of the three of those, which of the three of those vices um, do you think will be the first to become fully legalized in the United States?
1: Uh, Well, uh, there's actually a Supreme Court case on sports gambling. I don't know if
0: you've heard it.
1: uh, NCAA versus Christie. Um, There's a law that was passed in 1992. And what it did was it um, it banned – it was a federal ban on sports gambling. But what it did was it grandfathered in the four states where it was legal, the main one being Nevada, mm-hmm. um, Oregon, Montana, and Delaware. They had laws on the books where they could have, like, really minimal forms of sports gambling. It's not real sports – to be, to be, it's not real, real sports game. It's just like a really modified minor, um, form of it. Um, so basically what happened was that provided a monopoly, um, for the Nevada casino industry. Now it's one of the things I write about in the book, you know, all of the different conflicts of interest. Um, but the state of New Jersey, they passed a referendum to legalize sports gambling. Um, but the federal government—it's been this battle between the federal government and the state of New Jersey that's been going on for years, and the Supreme Court is actually going to rule um, on this case this year.
0: Oh wow!
1: Now that doesn't—now that doesn't mean um, there's, there's still the Wire Act in place, but within the states. Um, y- that would open the door for states to pass legal sports gambling within their state borders. And there's, um, a few of actually already, um, they're, they're pretty much right on the verge and there's literally about 20 different states that are in the process of writing up, um, legislation. Um, and from everything I've read, again, I'm not, I'm not an attorney, um, but I have read the transcripts of that, um, of the case so far and every legal expert that I've come across Maybe one or two out of, uh, out of like a hundred, um, like basically 98 out of a hundred have all said that it looks like the Supreme Court will rule in favor of New Jersey and then o- overturn that law, um, to let the states, um, uh, let the states decide. Now, again, it'll still be illegal across state lines, uh, but now that, that is a massive, Massive industry. Some people estimate that the market, the black market size for sports gambling in this country, is as high as three hundred billion dollars. I believe it. Um, that, that doesn't represent. That, that's the revenue side. Um, the actual profits from sports gambling are it's right around four and a half, five percent of that figure. But again, multi-billion-dollar industry that would put you know tens of thousands of people into a legal occupation, pay you know billions of dollars in tax revenue. Um, now it's not like the drug war and that there's this massive black market crime. Now that there is some, uh, but not nearly as bad, mainly just because the penalties for sports gambling aren't nearly as severe. You know, you don't have the mandatory minimum sentences, the three strike laws and all that. Uh, but there, there is damage from that black market for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I would say that that's, that could happen in a couple months that decision and then it's up to the states and there are several states that will probably legalize with I'd say probably within a year.
0: Yeah, well that um, will have a tremendous impact on Vegas and there's a lot of money obviously tied up in Vegas so I would assume that you know that 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 money is going to Somehow find its way into getting the uh, the licenses that are able to open up sports betting and in some other I'm not going to say you know every state that that chooses to do it, but it, it, in some of those states, I'm sure they'll manage to get their crony foot in the door
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean it, that book in particular and that subject is it it is crony capitalism is the name of the game when you look at legalized gambling um yeah Nevada will definitely um will definitely fight that. The thing is, um, sports gambling is actually a pretty small portion of the, the casino industry. Um, it's part of the argument I make. It's actually a game of skill. Um, things like slot machines, stuff like that. It's less labor intensive. It's more profitable for them. Um, and another thing, uh, most people don't realize that gambling um, is actually really, it's, believe it or not, is actually I'm trying to remember the figure off the top of my head. The last I looked, it's actually about 34% of the revenue for most Nevada casinos. It's actually most, th- these are now basically entertainment companies. Um, and then if you look at those revenues, sports gambling is actually a, a fairly small portion of, of their um, income within that gambling
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: revenue. So, yeah, it's it, 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 not much of the actual gambling. In this country, takes place in Vegas. It's really, estimates say maybe one or two percent. The rest of it's really the black market.
0: That's that's interesting. Um, and and we do have a uh, we have a show that we uh, that we were doing through football season for our Lions Pride uh, subscribers. Uh, our bonus content. It's called Degenerate Gamblers, where we just you know play around <laughs> some fa- some fake money and uh, put some bets down. So right, was, right. How'd you, you do? Too? I did terrible. I I lost. So oh, okay. What... <laughs> <laughs> like almost everybody else. Like yeah, almost exactly. everybody else. A, glad it was and, fake money. Thing... We'll, we'll be back next year. We'll be back next year, and hopefully, do, maybe maybe we could <laughs> yeah, do it legally next year. That that would be great. Uh, quite
1: <laughs> probably, Yeah, uh, yeah. It depends upon your state. Do um, you mind if I ask what state you're in?
0: Yeah, Pennsylvania.
1: Pennsylvania. Actually that's one of the states. That's one of the leading states, uh, for the <laughs> sports gambling bill. I'm so sure I, sure I it would, is. I would I, where all the cronies I would are bet in Pennsylvania. They
0: want to get their hand in the on the tax dollars from it.
1: Quite possibly by next football. Yeah, next football season be tough, but yeah, I think by next football season you will probably have the right to do that.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good news. That's good news. I think, but uh, you know, Brian, Brian, uh, you know, I I really do enjoy this uh, the gambling conversation too. And I am sure, I mean, there'd be a lot of interesting, interesting stuff to talk about on the prostitution side as well. So, I definitely want to have you back on down the road to dig into to those two books a little bit more. Maybe we'll do those two together on another podcast.
1: Sure, I would love that. I love it. Yeah, there, there's, there's, there's so much to talk about with these topics. Um, and that's the thing I try to do with the book, is they're not fully focused on those subjects. You know, when, I, when I'm giving you that example about Chiquita, I'm really trying to point to systemic problems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I, I, gave the, I gave the series a title of Rackets. Um, just a little background. Some of it basically has to do with uh, my favorite political cartoons. Um, and it's, you, you, you may have seen it. it's a, a father and a son and the son says, I'm thinking about taking up, um, a career in organized crime. And the father says, uh, government or private sector. <laughs> and so, so basically what I, a, lot of what a basic theme in my book is really sort of pointing to the, the inequity of our justice system. Um, like I'll give you a stat basically, um, more or less, I don't remember the exact numbers, but burglary in this country amounts to about 3 or $4 billion um, worth of, of crime in this country. But now if you look at white-collar crime, now okay, well, one other thing to throw at that, civil asset forfeiture, which I basically view as criminal actions by the government, that in, in most years actually surpasses the level of burglary <laughs> in this country. But now if you look at white-collar crime, you just look at, say, healthcare fraud, for example. That's a $70 billion industry. But, you know, and we go back to these same examples. Now, if it's an individual who commits that crime, they're likely to go to prison. If a corporation commits that crime, they usually get a settlement agreement where they don't even have to admit to any criminal wrongdoing. They pay, a, you know, a basic slap on the wrist penalty. Um, and it's really just the cost of doing business. Um So it's really, it's really pretty much one of the themes um, of my books. Is I'm really, again, I'm using these topics, and again, I I think that these, these, um, you know, these consensual crimes that they need to be legalized, but I'm really trying to point out major, much bigger flaws in our system. Is yeah, it's it's, it's it's, a theme of the books.
0: It's all tied together, and yeah, it all comes down to really. You know, a flaw in the philosophy behind, I'm not going to even say the way our system is built, but the way that our system has really evolved over time. uh, Right. Our judicial system. In many, exactly,
1: and that's how I say it. It, They're inadvertently designed to fail. I think, and I've I've had some people sort of criticize it, thinking that I'm I'm pointing to some grand conspiracy. I'm not. I'm pointing to minor conspiracies along the way, but I'm not making some grand conspiracy that this is all, you know, designed to fail in some smoky room. No, I'm just pointing out that it's just, it's uncanny just how, how backwards our system is. And Mm -hmm. not in every way, but in in numerous ways. And and I really feel that, like I say, these, these three particular issues really highlight that in many ways.
0: So Brian, just one last thing before I let you go and I'll link to all your books on our show notes page. Um, do you have a website where, where people can find more of your work?
1: Yeah, you can, um, check out uh, my website. It's my name. It's Brian Sadie. My last name spelled S A A D Y. Um, you can check me out on um, social media. I've got a Twitter page, a Facebook page. That's uh, probably the best way to follow my work. But yeah, I do a lot of freelance writing for a ton of different organizations too. You can, I, you know, write about all these kinds of issues and more. Um, uh, but yeah, if you want to support my work, um, yeah, definitely check out check out a copy of those
0: books all right Brian well thank you so much for coming on oh thank you
1: I appreciate you having me on
0: I want to thank you guys for listening to today's show with Brian Sadie uh, you know I had a lot of fun talking with Brian today Brian is a really interesting guest I think he comes at things from a very uh, sort of unique perspective at least for me a lot of people I talk to. Um, a lot of people that I interview on this show coming at it from more from the left side of the aisle, which is interesting. Of course, he did admit that he, you know, is pretty much a libertarian, has voted libertarian. But you know, I think it's interesting to know, you know, especially with everything going on in our in our culture today. You know, I was just thinking the other day that you know, talking. I don't really get to talk with a lot of people from the left online. I don't get to talk about libertarian ideas i can never really make any progress talking with my friends from the left online when we're in person you know and we have that back and forth or like you know with brian today and i really don't consider brian a leftist i think he's more of a libertarian but just the the idea leftist as a whole i feel like when you can engage them in person in a in a bar or even on the phone or on skype i feel like it's it's easier i feel like you can uh You know, make some headway, especially when you're talking about criminal justice reform, ending the drug war, foreign policy, things like that. Of course, if you're trying to talk about uh, gun rights or or stuff like that, um, good luck. You got you got no chance with leftists, especially if you're trying to talk to them online. You got you got no chance at all. Talking about the economy, gun rights, stuff like that. Just just give up. So I don't know. How I got off on this tangent, but I feel feel like it's important to say. Uh, But I guess I should be fair and talk about conservatives, uh, Republicans as well. And Republicans do have their issues. A lot of the criticism I get for this show does come, for the most part, from people on the right, on the right-hand side of the aisle. But I, I will say this, I do feel like Republicans... Are more open-minded, which is surprising maybe to hear, but I feel like I can have a conversation with a Republican who vehemently disagrees with me, either online or in person, and they will at least listen. Um, They might criticize my opinion, but I can at least get them to listen. People on the left on some of these topics, they just want to scream and yell and run away. So anyway, I don't know how I got down this path, but I got down this path that's that's. I'm just going to stop right there. So let's uh, let's let's wrap things up here. I do just want to say, you know, this show, what we're doing here with Felony Friday, we're getting a big following with Felony Friday, but we're also getting a big following with the Lines of Liberty podcast as a whole. Right, with our what Mark's doing and Brian's doing, things are really starting to uh, to pick up here, and we want to keep this momentum going. And, you know, we've talked about wanting to get to the thousand dollar per month level in the pride, and we do want to get there and we want to continue to grow our audience as well. So please be sharing our shows. Please be advocates for us. I mean, if you like what we're doing, um, you know, please try to help us, try to help us grow this show, share with your friends, go to iTunes, Stitcher, rate the show, leave comments, all that good stuff. Join the lines of Liberty Forum, Facebook, type in lines of Liberty Forum in the search bar, um. As long as you're a real person and answer our <clears throat> where well, you heard about the show, then you will absolutely get in. And of course, if you want to step your game up and support the show, um, put some money, give us some money to advertise and and uh, and travel, then you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride. And I do want to tell you, the new $15 level, we're getting some great feedback from a, people are really enjoying the new perk, which is the daily news links that are sent out where you get news links um, categorized into uh, liberty, politics, criminal justice, reform, cryptocurrency, mainstream news, foreign policy, probably forgetting something else. But anyway, it's getting great feedback. People are really enjoying it. So you can join the pride by going to linesoflibertycom slash support, learning about all the different levels, find out which one fits into your budget um, and, you know, how much content do you want? How much free stuff do you want? How much do you want to participate? So check that out. lionsofliberty.com slash support. We really would, uh, would love to have you on board. And with that being said, guys, that's all I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of Liberty burning.